This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. In August 2017, we launched Dying to Tell with an in-depth look at proposed legislation for voluntary assisted dying. We interviewed Fiona Patton MP, who initiated the parliamentary inquiry into end-of-life choices, Dr Marion Harris, an oncologist opposed to the proposed legislation, and Stacey Hall from Go Gentle, an advocacy group headed up by Andrew Denton. In November of that year, Victoria became the first state in Australia to pass laws that allows a person in the late stages of advanced disease to take medication prescribed by a doctor that will bring about their death at a time they choose. This law becomes operational on the 19th of June. And as we did in 2017, we've invited into the studio guests who can provide different perspectives on the new law and its implementation. And so I welcome to the Joy Studio Julian Gardner, AM, and Cass Hall. Julian is a lawyer and former Victorian public advocate with extensive experience in advocating for vulnerable people. He's the current chair of the Implementation Task Force, having served as a member of the Ministerial Advisory Panel on Voluntary Assisted Dying. He is also deputy chair of Alfred Health and a former chair of Mind Australia and has previously served as president of the Mental Health Review Board. Cass Hall describes herself as an avid campaigner for people with terminal illness, having lived on borrowed time for 28 years. At 12, she was diagnosed with an incredibly rare form of cancer, and 28 years later, after major surgeries and relapses that brought her close to death a number of times, she's studying law and campaigning for human rights. We met Cass through Go Gentle. So welcome to the studio and thank you both so much for coming in here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Having heard from Fiona Patton how carefully crafted this legislation was, I'm really interested to know what you both think of the Voluntary Assisted Dying Act. Well, I think the goals were to come up with legislation that was both safe and compassionate. And I think it achieved that in ensuring that it was safe we have so many safeguards in the Act that I think you could describe it as being overly bureaucratic. It is um, the price to pay for ensuring that uh, we, the Parliament was prepared to pass the legislation. But I think that fundamentally uh, it did achieve those goals of being safe and compassionate and advanced uh, the concept of autonomy, of promoting that very important human right. And Cass, what about you? How do you feel about the Act? I I couldn't agree more with Julian. Human autonomy has to be at the centre of everything that happens in terms of this Act. And it's my view that that was what happened. Um, I also agree that the Act is in some ways overly um, regulated, but I also agree that it's better than nothing and it was the price that we had to pay to get the legislation through. Um, Unfortunately, it will mean that there are some people who are excluded from um, being able to access the program. But again, something is better than nothing and something that is overly safe is far better than something that is 
reckless. So if you could change anything in the act, what would it be? I would put it back out to 12 months from six um, for those who are looking to access the program. Um, I thought 12 months was always the right number. And I would, personally, I would be looking at how we can include safeguards to bring VAD a little closer into the um, Advanced Care Directive sphere as well. I, I have some reservations about not being able to make those decisions while I am healthy and sane and able to make those reasoned decisions. Okay, um, and we're going to get to that because that's yeah. something that I'm very interested in. Yeah. Julian, if you could change anything in the Act, is there, is there anything that you'd, you'd want different? Look, that's an interesting question. Having been involved in, in recommending uh, the Act to, or the Bill, to the Government, the, the question of whether you have to be within six months of death or 12 months of death, the panel's recommendation was for 12 months, but that was really because we were concerned about people, particularly with motor neurone disease. And I think the compromise that uh, the Parliament came up with of saying it's six months, but 12 months if you've got a neurodegenerative condition probably satisfies that. Um, I think it is important to maintain that this does apply to people who are close to death and, and, and six months. And as we know, prognosis is an imprecise science. So many people will live, in fact, for more than six months after being told they've only got six months to live. So asking me whether I change anything, I'm going to duck the question and say, no, uh, I'm going to implement, I'm, I'm chairing the task force implementing what we've got. So, Kath, having faced um, death previously and, and with a cancer that I understand is reoccurring, mm-hmm. Why is this law important? And, you know, perhaps you can share a little bit about your story. Sure. I was diagnosed in 1990 as a 12-year-old with a tumour that at that time they believed I was the second child in the world ever diagnosed Mm -hmm. with it. I was given... I had surgery and was given chemotherapy um, and then basically just sent off to see what happened. Um, At that stage, um, my parents had been called in five separate times to say goodbye to me because I was that close to death clearly that didn't work out that way Um, and I then had uh, a relapse at 22 another one at 30 another one at 33 and I've also had several um, other surgeries um, and complications along the way Um, and it's it's something that I continue to sort of live with um, even as recently as five or six weeks ago we sort of spent a week thinking that number five was happening um, which it isn't which is nice Um, so I've lived with this very rare condition um, which is the result of um, a genetic defect a very rare genetic defect and my part of the genetic defect is so rare that that actually hasn't been seen so we're in a very funny stage of we don't know what happens next and we don't know what happens when there's nothing more that they can do medically for me. So it's it's a bit of a tricky situation. And the reason that this is all very important to me is because I want control as much as possible. I can't control my disease. I can't control when it comes back and what it's going to do to me. Uh, I can't control the treatment options insofar as when they run out. 
And so at the moment, there really aren't any treatment options outside of surgery. And eventually, there's only so much that you can remove from a person's body before it stops functioning. So what I'm looking for is the option to not die slowly and painfully, um, which I've watched far too many friends do over the past 28 years. That's why I'm here. There was quite a bit of um, media debate and discussion leading up to the vote in 2017. I think we were all very aware of, of what was going on. But I've found very little commentary on its implementation. Julian, is there a reason for this? Well, the Act provided for an 18-month implementation period and therefore, because it's such a long period, a lot of the work we've been doing for the for the last year has been behind the scenes and it is really now that we're within three months uh, that a lot of the work the Implementation Task Force has done is is becoming public. So that, for example, uh, only last Friday uh, on the Department of Health and Human Services website went up a 48-page information, detailed information for people who, who are really contemplating this process. Uh, on Friday, we launched a document called Guidance for Health Practitioners, which is detailed information, which has been through a whole lot of user testing with, with health professionals and so forth. That was just come out. The training, which will be required for the two doctors who do the assessment, is within about a week of, of being finalised. So a lot of that is all coming together right now. And the other thing is that I think there's a timing issue. If you give too much information six months out, people are going to get confused. And so um, there is, in fact, uh, an implementation conference uh, scheduled to be held on May the 8th, 9th and 10th uh, with some international guests from Canada who, who've got uh, some very relevant experience in this area. So I think what you're seeing is the ramp up of publicity now that we're getting close. Okay. And as a lawyer, how difficult has it been translating laws into clinical practice? Oh, look, I, I think uh, the, the time I spent on the panel was probably the most challenging thing that I've done, just from a not just from a legal sense, but also an emotional sense and a moral and, and ethical sense. And it's very rare for the law to pros- prescribe a form of medical treatment. We do it to a certain extent in the, in the Mental Health Act, but it, it's a rare occurrence, and, and that's why we've had to spend... I mean, we've just finished, I think it was about 47 uh, presentations at health services around Victoria to try to help uh, hospitals and, and health services and aged care services understand the interaction between the law and, and medical treatment in relation to this. So, yes, it, it is unusual. And perhaps you can talk a little bit about um, the task force team. Who are some of the members on your team and their expertise? Because, I mean, it's, it's an incredible group of people you've been working with. Oh, look, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful group of people. Um, there are a number of uh, medical practitioners, um, and that's really important because uh, so much of this is necessary to translate this act into a practical sense for, for the health profession to work with. We have an emeritus professor uh, of nursing. Uh, We have uh, somebody who comes from the disability community, a wonderful advocate uh, who's been really important in making sure that we we interact well with with that community. Um, There is somebody whose background is in uh, the, the consumer 
face of, of health services and therefore ensuring that we keep uh, the, the, the person front and centre in all of this. So it, it, it's a really fabulously talented group of people. Julian, when you've been going to these presentations and speaking to these professionals from varied, various fields, from disability and aged yep. care, are there any concerns or fears that you're hearing or have they been in the sector so long that they're actually relieved to now have this material? Look, there are still concerns um, because this is a dramatically different form of medical treatment. A lot of them are very practical concerns, though. Um, I think those who have a philosophical or moral objection um, have largely, at least in the presentations we've given, accepted that this is now the law. Yeah. But there are practical questions, and, and they range around things such as, well, how do I know as a health professional that I can inform somebody about voluntary assisted dying when the Act says that I can't initiate the discussion. So what does somebody have to say to me for me to know that they've initiated the discussion? And that's something that we've provided guidance on in these materials we've just released. So they're very practical questions. Well, from my understanding, this process begins, as a lot of medical events do, with a visit to the GP. Not necessarily. I mean, you may have uh, a long uh, ongoing relationship with an oncologist and you may be that's where you start the discussion or it, it, it might be depending upon your condition with it with another specialty. Okay so let's say we have that discussion with um, a medical professional be it your GP or your specialist. There are doctors in Victoria who are approved to assist a patient with voluntary assisted dying. What should a person do if their GP or their specialist has a conscientious objection to participating? If, if, if the medical practitioner has a conscientious objection, they they have to tell the patient that they're not willing to proceed with this. There's no requirement under the Act for them to refer to somebody who will deal with it, so it's in contrast to the abortion legislation. But the professional uh, obligations are that you don't impede somebody from access to health services. So one would hope that you would make a referral. If not, there will be uh, four people with the title of care navigators who uh, a person can ring or contact to get assistance to help them navigate through the system if they're having trouble finding somebody who will assist them. Now, if I also just go back just to pick up one thing, you you said there are uh, doctors who are approved. It's not quite right. Um, Every doctor can, if they're willing, give information the only doctors who can conduct the assessments of eligibility, they're not approved, but they must have done the training. Right. And that's the training that you mentioned before that's currently being rolled yes. out in the coming weeks. Yes. And that's, that's only required by the doctors. You have to have two assessments of your eligibility. So uh, it's only required for the doctors performing that function. Cass, you've probably spent more time than most considering end of life. If there are doctors and service providers that won't participate, do you think this should be information that patients can access easily to help with their end-of-life planning? Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'd like to see perhaps some kind of website or government website that if doctors are willing to opt in to say that they will participate, that their um, details are provided on that website. Um for those of us who are a little more tech savvy and can perhaps navigate this sort of thing ourselves, that might not be such an issue. Um, my GP is opposed. My oncologist is opposed. I already know that. 
Um, so I'm already having discussions with other doctors and other specialists trying just to get a gauge of the people who I'm surrounded by and where they sit so that if and when the time comes, I'm not sort of flying blind into things. But not everybody is as forthcoming or forthright as I am or able to access um, or able to, if you like, navigate that system so having a central place where people can find out where they can get the assistance would be great Um, I'm thinking particularly for some older people who um, may have some basic internet skills and can do a basic internet search but maybe are not you know fully cognizant of the intricacies of finding detailed information somewhere easy where they can say okay that's that's someone that I can go to for help or that's someone I can go to for help if their own doctors are not willing to give them a referral or not willing to talk to them about it. I think that would be wonderful. Julian, do you know of any health services that have objected to participating? I'm thinking of palliative care facilities that may have religious affiliations. Yep. Do you think this is going to be an issue? Look, undoubtedly there will be some faith-based services who, who will not be involved, but I also would make the point that uh, many of the ones that I've spoken to have said, while we won't provide such services, we will not withdraw our palliative care services from people who are accessing this. And I think that is is really important. Um, and so, uh, I look, it remains, there are a lot of unknowns about how this is going to work out in practice. But uh, my feeling is that um, it will all bed down quite quite comfortably. And I would be very surprised if there's any service that took such an attitude that, that they withdrew services. And I've not heard of anybody suggesting they would do that. So we mentioned this a little bit earlier, Cass, with um, advanced care planning. And advanced care planning is starting to gain momentum in Victoria. We've got really great... Um, laws around advanced care planning as well. Finally. Yeah. Um, Julian, this is an important question and it was sort of touched on before. Can a person request assisted dying in an advanced care directive? No, they cannot. So um, this is a really interesting point and I have to say that when I first uh, joined the the panel the year before last, uh, I was of the view that one ought to be able to to do that. Um, But I became persuaded by the arguments against it. And primarily it is that to ensure that this, the the voluntary, involuntary assisted dying is complied with, you must have people who have a capacity to make an informed decision and be able to express that decision in order to act voluntarily. The difficulty one would have, if I put in my advanced care directive that if I reach a certain stage, I do not want, uh, say, peg feeding uh, implemented, then it's quite clear to my medical treatment decision maker when to make that decision. It's at the point where the doctors say, well, we have to implement peg feeding now. If I were to have an advanced care directive that I want voluntary assisted dying, at what point, on what day, does somebody make that decision? And, And it's it, it's indeterminate, and so it would be very difficult for a medical treatment decision maker to make that that decision. I appreciate that for many people this is a great disappointment in the act, but I do think that it's far more important that we emphasise that voluntariness requires capacity and that nobody else impose this upon you. Whereas I feel that 
the voluntariness comes from the advanced care directive if you are putting into place very specific requirements and very specific instructions about the when and the how if you are no longer able to make that decision for yourself I, th- I think that that can be worked around I, I do accept that it is a difficulty though um, and I, I understand it and I understand that's why it's not there and I that's reasonable but I think that it's something that could be worked upon and perhaps over time as this starts to roll out and we start to see what it looks like in practice maybe it's something that we can readdress because I think that it is important for people to be able to put their full wishes into place at a time when they are able to make those decisions rationally and soundly. So let's talk about the rollout. Um, I know that we look to the Oregon model in drafting this legislation and I suppose um, we'll look at it again in the implementation phase. Without a crystal ball, Julian, what are your expectations for the first 12 months of this law? Um, Firstly, that the take-up will be gradual and that's based upon the evidence of any newly introduced medical treatments that tend to sort of scale up over a period of about three years. Um, we don't really know how many people access this. If we extrapolated from the Oregon figures, which there's 22 years experience there, it is likely that uh, in a full year, maybe not in the first year, 150 people will die uh, having taken voluntary assisted dying medication. It is likely that almost half as many again will obtain the medication but not use it, many of whom will have sufficient comfort knowing that they've got a control and and they haven't lost uh, the control of themselves. And it's probable that maybe four times as many again will seek information but not go ahead with uh, a request. And one of the really positive parts of this legislation is those people who, because they initiate a discussion, actually get access to better health care by having a conversation with a doctor who says, well, why are you making this request? What is it you're fearful of? What is it just the nature of your suffering? How could we help you? And it may well be that it's really a cry to say, I want to stop this aggressive treatment and and have a better quality for the last five months. It may be that they've never heard of palliative care and, and that they could really benefit from that. It's interesting to note that there is no requirement for anybody to tell you about palliative care with one exception, if you make a request for voluntary assisted dying, then there are two doctors who have a statutory duty to tell you what palliative care is and tell you how it might help you. So I would expect there to be an uptake of palliative care and a lot of people who will find better health outcomes and therefore a better dying simply by raising these discussions. And Cass, what, what, what are your expectations of the first 12 months? I... I have less expectation of the uptake. Um, I think the numbers might end up being a bit smaller, um, at least in the initial stages. Mm. Um, and I, I base that purely on that I think people might start talking about it. They might even start the discussion. But my experience, particularly with my my illness and illnesses like it, is that you can start those discussions, but the process that has been put in place, the likelihood of you actually getting to the end of that discussion still in a position to be able to make those decisions might be limited. So I think there'll be a lot of people who start those discussions. 
I'm not sure how many people will end up at that final stage of actually taking the medication, certainly in the early stages. And I think that's, for me, the big problem with the six months um, is that maybe three of those months might be okay, but those last three months might not, where they might not be in a position to make a decision where a doctor is satisfied that it's voluntary and that they're of, of sound mind to make the call. Um, so I think the numbers might be a bit smaller to start with. Other than that, I think Julian's got that right. I think I think that's and I, I think the discussion around palliative care is is super important and I um, to my mind these two are not in competition with each other. They should absolutely be discussions had first about palliative care and voluntary sister dying if necessary afterwards. Um, and my hope is that one of the outcomes of all of this is that we actually continue to put money in and resources into the palliative care system so that those systems are world-class. I wish... Can, can I just add yep. something to that? Because um, uh, I, I agree that you know, the take-up may well be small in the first 12 months. But I just want to make this point that, that if you're told that you've got less than 12 months to live, there's nothing to stop you starting the conversation with your doctor mm. about it even if the doctor says well look this is what's involved but we have to wait until uh, a bit further down the track before you can actually make a request and be assessed mm. so there will be some people who can start the process and start thinking about it and start the discussions with their doctor even though they're not yet told well you've only got I'm having those discussions already and, and, and I'm not even well, close well, that's <laughs> to good. dying and that's a good example <laughs> and and the other thing about palliative care uh, <coughs> It's interesting to note that in Oregon, and, and things are different in America, of course, the proportion of people who use assisted dying there who also receive palliative care is double that of the Oregon population as a whole. Oh, I just wish someone would come along and rebrand palliative care because so many people have misconceptions about what palliative yeah. care is and it's just the name you know it needs rebranding it needs to be called comfort care or something fabulous because palliative care is a, just the most wonderful resource that people have you know at um, it really end is of life. and when you see people if you know if you've ever been into um, a facility that provides palliative care and when you're seeing it done well as we traditionally do in Victoria yeah. Um, when you see it done well, it's 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 actually quite an honour and a beautiful thing to witness. I couldn't agree more. And I hear these stories from families time and again yep. about the extraordinary care that family members get in palliative care. It is, yep. you know, a story that is continuous and it is, it's never a bad story. It's always an incredible mm. story. Yep. There's training and support for doctors and physicians and carers. But what about the carers from home, the family members? Because they will be making their own judgments around this. Is there any support for family members who are going through this? I don't think there has been enough discussion around bringing family members into the discussion. Um, and I think that's because we've been very focused in the VAD sphere on patient autonomy yeah. around making sure that coercion is eliminated or at the very least minimised. Yeah. Um, and so to my, to my experience, there hasn't been an enormous amount of discussion um, from my own perspective and from the perspective of those that I know, we are very much having discussions with our families. Um, and though I don't speak for anyone but 
myself, um, those discussions have gone from very well to very poorly Mm. um, and sort of at every juncture in between as well. Um, I've lost friends um, over my over my advocacy work um i i i have a father who's very supportive of the idea um i have a sister who hasn't had a whole lot to say about it at all um i've got a husband who i'm very lucky has just said whatever you decide i will be there whatever your decision is i'll be there till i'll be the last thing you see which is a little worrying (laughs) some days (laughs) I, I, there's a lot of onus on us as patients yeah, to be the ones be to educate yeah. our families. And I'm not from a, a family that has particularly strong religious convictions in any way. So for me, that's not an element of the discussion. But if you are someone who does come from a family who perhaps is Catholic or Jewish or Muslim, where there are some very strong ideas around death and around how death should happen... These are very, very tricky um, conversations to have and I don't know, or certainly in my experience, I don't see enough support for those discussions to be happening, not in a productive and um, separate way away from those systems and institutions. So these are discussions you're having now at the moment. And and my question, which is really interesting, Gina, because it's exactly the next question I've got, is about special services um, for grieving families. Mm. Um, And I'm I'm also wondering, you know, is there potential for stigma for a family of a person who's chosen an assisted death? On the first question of bereavement services, it's important to emphasise that this is just one more option for medical treatment at the end of life. And any good health service has a suite of services that include support for the bereaved. And that doesn't mean to say that we do it well everywhere, but it is done, in fact, very well in many cases. So there's no reason why those services don't apply here. There's nothing additional being added to deal with this, but uh, certainly... Um, one would expect the same sort of supports to be provided. As for the stigma, look, during the consultations, we we heard concerns particularly about what was going to be on the death certificate because you often have to take the death certificate to the electricity company and the gas company to get the cut-off. And what will happen is that the certificate signed by the doctor as, as to the cause of death will show that the cause of death was the voluntary assisted dying substance but the underlying cause was the disease but the former certificate that's issued to the family will only show the underlying cause and that is partly in recognition that uh, for some people family members they may feel a stigma about this. But I think the question that you're posing around families is not so much post-death but pre-death and talking about the discussions and the family supports in place before death. Family, there is a lot of family support put in place. Julian's absolutely right, provided for people who might be in hospital. So if I'm in hospital and I'm, you know, in my final weeks or days of life, there will be enormous support placed around my parents, my siblings, my husband. But in in the case of voluntary assisted dying, particularly if, I decide to go home to do that a lot of those services don't exist and it's a little bit about the discussion around there does 
we do start having those discussions around the moral and ethical um, beliefs and people who support the idea and who don't support the idea. And from my very preliminary discussions with some of my family and friends, I'm already seeing people step back because they simply don't agree with my point of view on what I want to see happening for other people, but potentially for myself as well. So the idea that my husband or my family might have, there might be a split within that group or the supports that might normally be around them are no longer there because people have made their own decisions about what they think is right or wrong. I'm not sure that there is a huge level of support around that. These are, these are really tricky questions mm-hmm. and it's because we're so patient-centred, we're thinking about what's happening for me and what my big thing, whenever I'm relapsed or whatever, my big thing is as I, I find one or two people in my life, um, I have a family friend who's like a second father to me and I, when I ring him and I give him the news, I say to him, I don't need you to worry about me. Your job in this is once a week or whenever you can, pick up the phone and ring Michael, who's my husband. See how he's going because I need to know that there's someone I trust who's looking out for him because he's so busy looking out for me mm. that no one's – and his family is interstate. I need to make sure there are support services, be it family and friends, whose focus is on him. I have enough attention – I need someone to be focused on him. and I. But in this situation where we're talking about someone choosing to end their suffering and end their lives and we deal enough with the stigma around things like suicide, which is a different situation, some of those supports suddenly disappear very quickly. And those are discussions that we do need to be having. One thing I'd like to add to that is there, there was some excellent research done at the Austin about advanced care planning which looked at a control group who uh, well there were two groups one had an advanced care plan uh, the family member did and the others didn't interviewed six months after death it was found that those families where there had been no advanced care plan were experiencing quote a significant level of psychological distress in some cases amounting to post-traumatic stress disorder the families of the group who did have an advanced care plan did not d- display the same uh, illness and were far more likely to say that this was a good death, both from their viewpoint and the view of the deceased. Now, there is some evidence from overseas that exactly the same outcomes are likely with this because, let's face it, you've got somebody who is dying anyway and they are suffering by definition. They don't qualify and they're not. And so for families to not realise that to, to oppose their view means, well, you must continue suffering, is a really difficult situation. So I, I agree that I'm not sure that there are any particular supports involved in this, but it, it, it is really important to understand that, in fact, the outcomes for families may well be far, far better, certainly much better than the, the estimated uh, one case a week of a suicide in Victoria mm in circumstances where somebody would have qualified under this legislation and leaves people in the family devastated. Yeah. And finally, um, if there are concerns from community, Julian, who will oversee Victoria's voluntary assisted dying laws and what's been set up to handle concerns and complaints? There is established the Voluntary Assisted Dying Review Board, 
which is chaired by uh, Betty King, a former Supreme Court judge, uh, with some very eminent people on it. They will monitor the operations of this legislation. They're required to, if they have any concerns, report anything to either the coroner, the police, or the Health Practitioners Registration Authority. They're also required to report to Parliament and to, as I say, monitor the ongoing operation of the legislation. I think everyone in this room agrees that we're in good hands with Betty King. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) She's fierce. Where should people, if people are hearing about this for the first time or a bit scared or maybe it's for a family member, where would you point them as a starting point to get information about just the logistics and and this, because it seems overwhelming and it seems a bit bureaucratic just from hearing about it. Mm -hmm. Where can people just get really basic information to just start the conversation. I think the, the government has actually just released, um, has just made public a website, which um, I was actually looking at it, I think it was late last night, which has a really plain English type of level of information, asking questions yep. and with very simple answers. So it's on the health um, department website um, and it's just come out. I think Julian yep. um, knows about it. So it's, it's, and it's got some really straightforward basic questions with very basic answers talking to different audiences yes well, different perhaps i can help you with that yeah, because sure. if you were to google voluntary assisted dying victoria it will take you because otherwise the web address is very long to the department's mm. website yeah. and there there are a number of resources but particularly under community information there's a, a fairly brief document which is an overview translated into 17 languages and into easy English. But last night, no, sorry, Friday night uh, of last week, um, a much longer detailed document which is intended to provide everything you need to know for somebody who's actually considering this is now available. So there is some now really good consumer-tested information available. There's lots of really good community-based information as well from, from advocates... You know, and I'm reticent to say, oh, you know, check out blogs and stuff because you never know what you might exactly. get. Yeah. But there are some really great um, people writing in this space and providing information in this space. Go Gentle is a great advocacy organisation that I've done some work with. They provide some really good information. Um, there's lots of really good news articles even. Even yeah. during the, the act when we were in Parliament getting this through, there was some terrific reporting being done. Yeah. Um, so there's there's lots of really good information out there mm. um, and I'd recommend that people I, – I have no problem with people who say this is not for me, um, but I, I would absolutely always say you need to be doing some reading and you need to be getting – making sure that your facts – and your information is good information before you make a decision for yourself or before you maybe stand in judgment of others as well. I think the the department will also uh, have an end-of-life care Mm -hmm. portal, which means you can go there to access information about all aspects, whether it's including palliative care and support services as well as voluntary assisted dying, because remember this is just one Mm -hmm. other option for people facing uh, the end of their life.
Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.